So to begin with, I'm very happy that I have the opportunity to visit you here in Melbourne. It's been 15 years that I was here last. Time flies. And just for those who I am, I am maybe meeting the first time, let me just quickly introduce myself. So by nationality, I'm German, but I never lived in Germany as a devotee. I actually joined in Australia in 1985, so I'm not a pro-part disciple. I'm always very embarrassed when people think I'm a pro-part disciple just because I'm getting more wrinkly. People think you must be a pro-part disciple. <laughs> so no, I'm not a pro-part disciple. I joined in 85 in Colo River outside Sydney. We had that farm which we later sold and we moved the deities to North Sydney and then to Cessnock, you go cool. Yeah, and I was four years in Sydney in the Vamatrini Ashram. Then I was married for 10 years to a devotee from Australia. He's actually maybe in Melbourne, I'm not sure. <laughs> and a few months after we got married, we went to former Soviet Union to start preaching there. That was in 89, just when the Iron Curtain fell, so it was a very adventurous time. So then 1999, my former husband took a little break from Krishna consciousness and our paths went different ways. And since 1999, I basically live out of a suitcase. I have no real base as such, I'm always moving. And usually I spend five months per year in India and Bangladesh, seven months per year all around Europe. Also my favorite yatra is Ukraine. So yeah, for the last 22 years I was going there regularly and I know all the devotees and the temples and everything. So you may imagine that this is very heartbreaking when one knows people there, you know, that makes everything more personal and you get emotionally involved, you know. Oh my God, you know, yeah, it's quite, quite terrible. But what to do? There must be Krishna's plan also behind that. I was last night listening to a lecture of Nuranjana Swami. He is my third Diksha Guru. <laughs> I had two more before, Bhavananda, Prabhavishnu Prabhu, and then one more time, Naranjana Swami. So, and he was saying, yes, we tend to see Krishna's mercy only in the good things, you know, but also in the bad things. This is also Krishna, and it's also Krishna's mercy. And yeah, not so easy to always see this, you know. So in any case, and yes, so now I'm here in Melbourne and I hope I can be of some little use and inspiration to you all. I'm working on my four, fifth book. I've published four and I'm working on my fifth book, so I'm withdrawing a little bit from Monday to Friday, working on my book, and on the weekends I like to connect with you all and make myself available and all that. Yes, okay, so let us turn to the Bhagavatam. Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya 
Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So we're reading from Kento 6, chapter 5, verse number 42. Yanastvam kama sandanam Yanastvam kama sandanam Sadunam grihamedinam Sadunam grihamedinam Kritavanasidumasam Kritavanasidumasam Vipriyam tavamasitam Vipriyam tavamasitam Yanastvam kamasandanam Sadunam grihamedinam Kritavanasidumasam Vipriyam tavamasitam Yet, which, na, unto us, Tvam, you, Kamasandanam, <coughs> who strictly follow the fruitive ritualistic ceremonies, according to Vedic injunctions, Sadunam, who are honest, because we honestly seek elevated social standards and bodily comfort. Grihamedinam, although situated with a wife and children, Kritavan Asi have created Dumasam unbearable Vipriyam wrong Tava you Mashitam forgiven translation by Shilapopat. Although I have I live in a household life with my wife and children. I honestly follow the Vedic injunctions by engaging in fruitive activities to enjoy life without sinful reactions. I have performed all kinds of yajyas, including the Deva Yajya, Rishi Yajya, Pitri Yajya, and Nri Yajya, because these yajyas are called ratas, vows. I'm known as a griha rata. Unfortunately, you have given me great displeasure by misguiding my sons for no reason to the path of renunciation. This can be tolerated once. Purport by Pajapati Daksha wanted to prove that he had been more tolerant in not having said anything when the Radhamuni, for no reason, induced his 10,000 innocent sons to adopt the path of renunciation. Sometimes householders are accused of being Grihamedis, 
for Grihamedes are satisfied with family life without spiritual advancement. Grihastas, however, are different because although Grihastas live in household life with their wives and children, they're eager for spiritual advancement. Wanting to prove that he had been magnanimous to Narada Muni, Pajapati Daksha stressed that when Narada had misled his first sons, Daksha had taken no action. He had been kind and tolerant. He was aggrieved, however, because Narada Muni has misled his sons for a second time. Therefore, he wanted to prove that Narada Muni, although dressed like a sadhu, was not actually a sadhu. He himself, although a householder, was a greater sadhu than Narada Muni. So when I read the purport, I had to smile to myself, you know, since Prabhupada mentions Grihamedes and Grihastas, because that's exactly the topic I'm writing on now. You know, how to make one's family life into an ashram, because this is not such an easy thing, actually. I dare say we are not quite there yet. We are not quite there yet, you know? We can imagine there's a whole spectrum. Here we have Grihamedi life, family life for sense enjoyment. Maybe pious, like here Daksha also says, he performs so many yagyas, but why, you know, to actually enjoy family life without getting sinful reactions? So that's actually Grihamedi life even though one may follow so many rules and regulations, given charity, this, that, this, that, you know? But if the goal is simply to enjoy nice family life, that's Grihamedi life, actually. So we have Grihamedi life on one end of the spectrum, Grihasta Ashram on the other. And this is something completely different, yes. It's a whole thing. And yeah, I dare say, you know, in ISKCON worldwide, because of lack of training, people slide into married life without any preparation, without any training. And all we know is usually queer medi life, at the best. <laughs> Actually, once I was giving a seminar on this topic in Mayapur, and one devotee from the audience, he said, Mataji, we are actually not even on the level of Grihamedi life, because Grihamedis don't get divorced. And I was thinking, wow, I had never even thought about that. You know, it really struck me. And I thought, yeah, well, maybe that he is right, you know. <laughs> so even Grihamedis, perform so many pious activities, you know, and they would not get divorced. But looking at our high divorce rate in ISKCON, I think we have to admit we are not quite there yet, you know. Yeah, so anyway, big topic. But let me first add a few little things to our topic of 
renunciation, detachment, and knowledge. So yesterday, Radhacharan Prabhu very clearly established that for most of us, it is a gradual process. It is not something we can do like we read here, you know, just by the association of a pure devotee, just to completely jump on the highest platform of renunciation. For most of us, it is a gradual process, you know. And I came across a nice statement, which Prabhupada makes in one of the purports, just to one more time establish the connection between renunciation and knowledge. This is also 4th Canto, 21st chapter, verse 62. Prabhupada says in the, no, hang on, sorry, 425.8, Prabhupada says in the purport, knowledge and the spirit of renunciation are the ultimate goal of life. Or we may say, well, the ultimate goal of life is bhakti. But now Prabhupada explains, without knowledge, one cannot become detached from material enjoyment. And without being detached from material enjoyment, one cannot make spiritual advancement. So that's how it connects, you know. We do need knowledge, sambandha jnan, to understand, yes, well, this material world, it's not my home, I'm not meant to be here. There's always death, old age, disease, and let me just not endeavor for material happiness here. You know, that knowledge we need. So, and that should lead to detachment, at least some desire to strive for detachment. So, and only then we can really, um, yeah, give up this desire for material enjoyment. And only then, proportionally, to how we give up the desire for material enjoyment, we can make proportionally advancement. We get a higher taste. Ultimately, renunciation, detachment, it is a question of a higher taste. And for most of us, it takes a while to get there. So now one thing which we don't so often maybe hear about, and which I do want to mention at this point, because, you know, especially for the men, I think this is very relevant, because often men, they wonder, so should I go for brahmacharya life, lifelong, or should I get married, and, and, and. So one interesting thing for a man, the question to get married or not, <clears throat> actually, can I have a glass of water, warm water if possible? So for a man, the question to get married or not is just not a, just a matter of whether he can be celibate. There is a more subtle thing to it. And Prabhupada very nicely explains this in one purport in the ninth canto, I believe. Because the subtle aspect is that Prabhupada explains most men need that feminine energy in their life to be empowered and inspired and motivated. So that's the subtlety of it, you know. 
And it's just fascinating how Krishna arranges the perfect system in this material world, you know. So not only we women need to be protected by a man, but also most men need that feminine energy to be inspired. So that's how it perfectly matches, you know. Men, women complement each other. And this is a point which, yeah, I feel it is still not deeply recognized amongst devotees, you know. And this also explains why so many wonderful personalities who were situated in the sannyasa ashram could not maintain that ashram. It, it's not just a question of being celibate or not, but no, it's a question of whether we are so brahminical, and brahminical meaning not just wearing a Brahmin thread, you know, because many devotees have Brahmin initiation, but they're actually not so Brahminical, you know. Yes. So only very Brahminically inclined men don't need that feminine energy in their life to be inspired. But all others do. And I do want to read you this. This is part of one of my seminars. So therefore, I brought the materials along. Let me see. This is, actually, it's fifth canto, first chapter, verse 29, in connection with Priyarata and his wife, Barismati. So there Prabhupada says, to maintain such a life of strict vigilance, one needs encouragement from his wife. In the Varnashram system, certain classes such as the brahmanas and the sannyasis do not need encouragement from the opposite sex, but actually all others do, all others do. And that's why only very brahminically inclined men should take sannyas, you know, because they don't need that feminine energy to be inspired. And then Prabhupada continues, Kshatriyas and Grihastas, however, actually need the encouragement of their wives in order to execute their duties. Indeed, a Grihasta or Kshatriya cannot properly execute his responsibilities without the association of his wife. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu personally admitted that a Grihasta must live with a wife. And now another interesting point. Kshatriyas were even allowed to have many wives. I was often wondering about that, you know. How is it that these great saintly kings had many wives? And I was often thinking, were they so lusty or, or why did they have so many wives? So now here we find the explanation. Kshatriyas were even allowed to have many wives to encourage them in discharging the duties of government. So in other words, they were such heroic kings ruling the whole world that the feminine energy of one wife was not enough. Yes. Yes, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? 
You know, so that's why they had many wives and they were zipping up all that feminine energy and hoo-hoo, you know, being the heroic rulers of the world. Yes, yes. So men with the Kshatriya spirit, you like to manage, organize, and, and, and they definitely need a wife. Definitely, definitely, you know. And then Prabhupada continues. The association of a good wife is necessary in a life of karma and political affairs. So karma meaning fruit of activities. So we can say anybody who goes out and works actually needs a wife next to him. And that will bring, yeah, that's the power of the feminine shakti, that the feminine energy can bring the very best out of a man, spiritually and materially. Yes, and we can often see this. You know, I don't know what the situation is like in Melbourne, but in the Western world, well, we are also in the Western world, but <laughs> um, in the Western world, in Europe, there's many men who think, no, no, I'm not going to get married, but they're also not Brahmachai, and they're kind of hanging in between there. And you can, yeah, because often the idea is, oh, married life, so much problems, so much entanglement, wife screaming, kids, no, forget it, I'm going to avoid this. And I'm just remain a bachelor. <laughs> but no, it doesn't work, you know. We have to be part of one of the ashrams. And very often, because I'm, I have that mentality, I'm always analyzing and looking and so on, you know. And very often we can see that men who are not married and don't have that feminine energy in their life, oh, they're kind of gloomy, prodding along, going to work. But what for, you know, that there is that, what, what for, you know, is not answered. But then if a man has a beautiful wife next to him who knows how to be the energy the auspicious source of energy and inspiration to him, whew, that brings him, you know, to his best performance, you know. So, yeah, I, I like to always emphasize this whenever the opportunity arises, that for a man to be not married is not just a question of whether he can be celibate or not. There's that subtlety there you know, whether he needs the feminine energy. And very often we can even observe that if a man is not situated in married life, but he's lacking this feminine energy, then he's stealing a few drops of feminine energy. This is going on, you know, by giving the women attention, by preaching to them, by guiding them, and, and, and. You know, and but that is unfair. That's stealing. You know, because the lady can feel this. Oh, he's giving me attention. Or maybe he wants to marry me. You know, then she goes to the temple president or such and such. Prabhu, I think he likes me. Can you ask him? Maybe he wants to marry me. So then temple president goes and asks him, and this brahmachari says, "Me getting married? Forget it. No, I'm a brahmachari. I'm just preaching to him." But mm, 
on the subtle level, there's something else going on, unknowingly, unconscious, you know, because we don't have that knowledge. We don't have that knowledge. And because it's also subtle, then people often fall into these traps, you know, but it is not conducive for spiritual development, you know. Yeah, yeah and because yeah, I feel there's just such a lack of education in all these topics. I actually established a little institute for spiritual culture and I put all these courses together and now I'm in the process of putting these courses into book form so they can reach more people. So, and yeah, because of lack of education, Another thing I um, come across so often is that, you know, men get married when they're 48 or 52 or something. Oh, no, a bit late, you know. Then we missed already the boat to the Vanapastasha because this is another thing very related to this topic after Grihastha Ashram is another ashram, the Vanapastha Ashram. I've got a whole course on that. And I can't wait to put it in book form because there's so much ignorance, misconceptions about this. Yeah, yeah. People, people feel often very threatened by this Vanapastha. <gasps> No, forget it. Don't give my husband any crazy ideas. You know, I've, I've come across all these kind of reactions, you know, when I wanted to invite somebody in Mayapur to a program about the Vanapasta Ashram. <laughs> and one lady, she was pouncing on me. Don't give my husband these crazy ideas. <laughs> yes, but Vanapasta, it's a team thing between husband and wife. It's together. It doesn't mean the husband put on, puts on saffron and walks out at night or something. No, it's a team thing. And, you know, once we get some proper education in Krishna's system, then it becomes very clear, you know. So, a man should get married ideally not much later than 30. Because then, you know, when his kids are 20, 22, he is 50, 55. That's when Vanapasta Ashram should set in. You know, and I mean, according to Prabhupada, oh, a girl should get married, married so early, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> but Prabhupada says, before she enters puberty, and last summer when I was traveling, preaching in Croatia, I stayed with a senior uh, couple, and they were not even 50. He is 48, she is 45 or 44, and their kids were out of the house, married, settled in the job, you know, they started early. And I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is actually how it should be. You know, they were not even 50. And kids were out of the house. And they could, you know, decrease their, their worldly 
affairs, business affairs. They were set up so they didn't have to work anymore. So, and they could just wholeheartedly absorb themselves again in service. You know? Yes, that's how it should be. Because, let's be clear, these family attachments are so deep, so deep, so subtle. And at the moment of death, we are tested. So, you know, we have to think of Krishna alone. Krishna alone. Not Krishna and my wife, my husband, you know, my grandkids, my dog, whatever, you know, but Krishna alone. So at the moment of death, we are tested which relationship is the most dear one for us, the most important one. And if it is Krishna alone, then we can go back to Godhead. But if there's other personalities in our life which are more important for us than Krishna, well, good chance that we have to do another round in the material world just to finish up all this more important business. Yeah, so subtle, you know? And these family relationships are just so deep. Yes, and that's why Vanaprastha is actually a must for anybody who wants to go back to Godhead. We have to disentangle ourselves and we have to, you know, put again, you know, the spiritual practice, sadhana, holy name, that has to be the center, you know, again, once again. And tapasya, and leaving one's cozy home, at least on and off, going two weeks, coming back, going three weeks, coming back, going four months, coming back, either together, either or separately, or he goes there, she goes there, and then they go together to India, and then again, and, and, and you know, there's various forms and variations of Anapasasha. But I've got, I mean, the Bhagavatam is full of quotes where Prabhupada says, everyone has to accept Anapasasha. Yes. And there's so many things connected with it. I've got a 15-hour course on this topic. So. <laughs> but yeah, very important, very important, you know. So, yeah, that's why, you know, family life as an ashram, if we really mold it as an ashram, there is so much purification in it, so much. And in a nutshell, ashram means Bhagavatam, holy name, has to be the center. That's what temple life is all about, you know, temple life is arranged in such a way that Bhagavatam, holy name, are the center, and life is molded around that, you know. And to have that, and, and that's why temple life, Bhamajai, Bhamajrini, that's an ashram. But as soon as that focus is not there anymore, well, 
this may be some kind of a mixture there. As we said, it's a broad spectrum, you know, Grihamedi life, Grihasta life, and there's so much mixtures and shades and grades there. But yeah, we have to really get as close to family life as an ashram as possible, you know. And even though in, in family life, externally we may not have so many big achievements to show, but the main purification is internally, intensely, just to tolerate, you know, tolerance. You learn that in family life, you know. Yes, I mean, there's so many lessons, you know, being a parent, you have to be selfless, you have to put the I, me and mine a little on the back burner and, and you have to, you know, consider the children's needs and, 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 you know, so it's, it's a whole purifying journey. And if a person goes through that journey without getting divorced, you know, then when the kids are grown up, there's such a wealth of life experience in wisdom and realizations, you know. So, and then the Vanapastasham, there we can share and preach and travel and, 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 you know. Yes. So we can almost say the Grihastasham is like sharpening the sword, you know. Of course, in Guiha's life, it's also opportunities to preach and so on. But sometimes I also come across these misconceptions as people say, yes, I'm getting married, but I don't want kids and I want to travel and preach. And sometimes I say, hmm, sounds like the wrong ashram. You, you got it mixed up, you know. <laughs> this, this is the Vanapasta ashram. You know, but family life, let's be honest, when man and woman live together, there's sex life, there's children. So how can you enter married life, you know, with this plan, no children? Uh, this, this goes against the laws of nature somehow. We must be cheating somehow or something, you know. Yes, so better to go properly through the ashrams as Krishna recommends it, and each ashram gives so much intense purification, you know, if, if we really mold it as an ashram. Now, one more little thing I do want to share. Since yesterday, at the end of Radhacharan Prabhu's class, Bhakta Prabhu was in a very straightforward way asking about, you know, no illicit sex life or sex life within marriage. There is a very nice verse, or two nice verses, in the 11th Kento, which very nicely explain this internal process of becoming detached. So, 11, this is 11, 20, 27, 28. There Krishna says, Having awakened faith in the narrations of my glories, being disgusted with all material activities, knowing that all sensual gratification leads to misery, but still 
being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment, my devotee should remain happy and worship me with great faith and conviction. Even though he is sometimes engaged in sense enjoyment, my devotee knows that all sense gratification leads to a miserable result and he sincerely repents such activities. Hmm. Yes, this is a very nice description of the internal mood and attitude of a devotee towards any kind of sense gratification, you know? So, yes, first step is having awakened faith in the narrations of Krishna's glories. In other words, we have to hear regularly. That's why I was saying, Grihastha life, family life as an ashram means, Bhagavatam, has to become a really important thing in our life. You know? And unfortunately, in many devotees' lives, it's not. It's not. You know? it's, it's even a big topic amongst the GBCs. How to inspire devotees to read Prabhupada's books regularly? This is a topic, yes. You know, so for, for many devotees in family life, Bhagavatam is almost not there, you know? They don't have time to come to the class, they're busy, kids, family, job, there's that. They don't listen much over internet, and then the only time they come to the temple is the Sunday program. And Sunday Feast Lecture is for newcomers. It's actually an outreach program. That's not so nourishing for practicing devotees, you know. In, in many parts of the world, I mean, I saw your whole list of bhakti riksha groups and all that. Wow, amazing. In many parts of the world, there's nothing going on like this. No house programs, nothing. Yes, in many parts of the world it's like that. Yeah, so therefore, you know, for many devotees, Bhagavatam is not in their life. Yes, and then it becomes difficult, you know. So the hearing, the regular hearing, highly important because that's how we awaken faith in Krishna's narrations and in the narrations of Krishna's glories and in his instructions. And then we should eventually become disgusted with all these material activities. Oh, when, oh, when will the day come when I have, can let go of this? You know, by hearing, we have to hear regularly again and again. Knowing that all sense gratification leads to misery. You know, that knowledge, that understanding we also get by hearing regularly, you know. But then Krishna has some understanding, you know, he says, but still being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment, you know. Yes, Krishna understands, he is a person. He knows it's not easy for us in Kali Yuga, you know. So, but still being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment. My devotee should remain happy and worship me with great faith and conviction. Meaning, yes, getting up for Mongoladi. 
either coming to the temple or having Mongolati at home. That's another simple but yet powerful aspect of family life as an ashram. Is there a Mongolati? You know? And not at seven or something, then it's not so Mongol anymore. You know, because um, because traveling around the place, I often stay with Grihasta, so some people have the habit at, at seven o'clock they get together and they sing all the songs down in one go. Well, all right, it's better maybe than nothing, but mm, no, it, it, it's not really how we should do it, you know. Actually, there should be a Mongolati at 4.30 or at the latest 5, but not much later than 5. I mean, I travel usually a lot in Bangladesh for the last 20 years. I've been very involved there. Pandemic, I haven't been able to go. But in Bangladesh, my God, they are Mongolati fanatics. They can't live without Mongolati, the Kriyasas, you know, and all the devotees. I remember I had once had this funny situation because I'm quite involved in student preaching there. So the students were asking me, Mataji, our life is so busy. How, how can we get all our rounds chanted and our studies done and, and, you know, and, and do everything, you know? So, and this is many years ago, in my ignorance, I made the following suggestion, which I immediately um, regretted that I made it. I was saying, well, I guess in the West, people wouldn't have Mongolati. They would just get up and chant. And these boys were looking at me with big eyes. What? What is she suggesting? No Mongolati? I mean, they were completely struck. And I immediately realized, I said, but here in your country, people like to do Mongolati. I immediately adjusted it, you know? Yeah, so this is the mood there. You know, people have Mongolati in their day. They can't imagine the day starting without Mongolati. Even if you come home at after midnight from a big panda program and I stay in somebody's house and I think, oh, hopefully they don't have Mongolati tomorrow. I'm too tired. But then sure enough, 4.30, boo, you know, the granny blows the conch through the whole house and she sings and does the Mongolati, you know. Yeah. And that's where I understood this is why Prabhupada emphasized Mongolati so much, you know. Because if you have a Mongolati at 4.30 or 5, you have to adjust your life. You have to take rest early. You can't eat, you know, at 10 o'clock pizza, rice, dal, and all this. Otherwise, you won't make it to Mongolati. You know? Yeah. So Mongolati puts everything into place. Such a simple little detail. You know? Yes. Very powerful detail, you know, very powerful. <laughs> yeah, so in any case, my devotees should remain happy and worship me with great faith and conviction. Meaning, yes, Mongolati, Japa, Bhagavatam, sooner or later I will get there that I can give up sense gratification. 
So, and then Krishna continues, even though he is sometimes engaged in sense enjoyment, again, Krishna has some understanding. You know, he's not a hard taskmaster. Oh, he had sense gratification. Oh, forget about him. No, no, he's compassionate. He understands, you know. So, even though he is sometimes engaged in sense enjoyment, my devotee knows that all sense gratification leads to a miserable result. That knowledge is there by hearing regularly. And now comes the crunch. And he sincerely repents such activities. Mm. Sincerely repents. You know? It has to be sincere from the heart, really feeling some remorse, some regret. Oh, when can I finally give up this? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but sorry, Krishna, you know. Yeah, so there has to be some regret. And Krishna is there in the heart, he sees whether it's sincere or whether we just say, ah, it's okay, nobody can follow anyway, and here we go, and Prabhupada had understanding and this and that. Then we are not repenting, you know? So there has to be that regret, you know? Yes, yes. So, I mean, this is a very nice, you know, very nice two verses which really show us what is the internal mood and attitude of a devotee in connection to sense gratification, you know. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, going a little bit into details, sometimes I come across this question, Grihasas ask me, so is once a month okay? No, it's not okay, because if you think it's okay, then how can you repent? How can you regret? Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a question of, oh, how often do we engage in sense gratification, but it is a question of, are we trying our very best? Are we trying to minimize it? And do we feel regret? And do we, you know, with great faith and conviction, serve the Lord, you know, and, and engage ourselves in the process and not surrender to our weaknesses and attraction to sense gratification. You know. Okay, time is up. Um, maybe we can quickly see if there's a question. Yes, Prabhu. That what I was quoting in regards to knowledge and detachment, it's, it's actually in a purport. Yes. See, I have my little verse book here where I always copy really nice things which I find and I put them in under topics. So this was 425.8. Yes. From what age they can join the program? 
got a few kids here, you know. I mean, it very much depends. The main and foremost thing is that the parents have to be naturally and happily practicing Krishna consciousness. It cannot be something artificial and forced and, oh, you must, and, and, and. No, the parents actually have to have a taste and there has to be a genuine culture of Krishna conscious practice in the home, of sadhana. There has to be a culture there, you know? So, and if the children grow up in this natural, harmonious culture of Krishna consciousness, then it is very natural that they also want to join in, you know? Yes. And, yes, as I was saying, not everybody may be able to come to the morning program to Mongoladi, but if the children grow up, you know, while they're sleeping, they hear father or mother ring the bell and some little kirtan there, Mongoladi and so on. I mean, this, this leaves deep impressions on a child's heart, you know? And I mean, I've got a whole course on children too. So children learn by imitation, you know? So if they see the parents, oh, their japa beads is something really important at my japa time, they also want the beads and they want to sit there. And, you know, it's very natural. It's very natural. But if, it's, if it is all artificial and forced and, you know, not a nice, genuine culture of sadhana, then the kids, they are clever, they are smart, they can feel. And then they don't feel inspired to be a part of this if it's all must and forcefully and so on. You know. So, but you know, according to the age, the kids can join. Of course, they can join. You know, yes. And the kirtans, oh, you know, family should have at least once a day a kirtan in the home. You know, yes, wonderful way of finishing a busy day to get together, have a little kirtan. It unites the family members, especially also once the kid get, kids get older, everybody sits there with their mobile phones in their corners, and it becomes a whole weird and impersonal atmosphere in a family. But if there's kirtan, that brings everybody together, you know. Yeah. So the kids, they can join right from young, young age. You know, according to their age and capacity, they can be a part of it, you know. Already in the room, they hear it all. They hear it all. Yes, yes. Anything else? Okay, quick. No, we sh hang on, that's a misunderstanding. We should not be disgusted with the idea of Grihastha Ashram. We should be disgusted with sense gratification. Right? Yes. 
But greenhouse dashram is a whole different thing, as Radhajan Prabhu was saying yesterday, or maybe the speaker before. All our previous Acharyas, they were grihastas, most of them. But their family life was an ashram. Yes, it was. There was Mongolari, definitely. You know? Yes. Bhagavatam, reading. I mean, I've, I've experienced all these things in Bangladesh. They even still now, when the householders cook their lunch, they cook a huge, large bulk. They cook all what Mahaprabhu was eating, all his favorite kinds of shark and this and that, you know. They actually cook for the Lord. They, just, they don't just open the fridge and say, oh, well, let's have a pot of spaghettis or something. No, they cook a whole big offering. And then they have Raj Bogati in their house after the offering. It's a full-on thing. Family sings the song, you know, describing all the nice items with which Krishna and Balaram were eating. They sing that in the family, you know. I mean, it's a whole different thing than what we experience in the Western world, you know, family life. So we should not be disgusted with the Grihasta Ashram, but we should be disgusted with sense gratification. But family life as an ashram, as I'm saying, for most men and for the women, definitely, it is a must for purification. It's a whole purifying journey. I mean, in one of my books about entering the Grihastha Ashram, there's a chapter, I don't want to get married. And I'm establishing there this attitude, I don't want to get married. This comes from Monday mindset. What do I like? Do I like to get married or don't I like to get married? And today I like, tomorrow I don't like. This is taking instruction from the mind, you know? And, and this, this is not the approach we, we should have in regards to married life as an ashram. There the question is, will this be purifying for me? Will this be helpful for my spiritual progress? Never mind whether I want or don't want, that's not the topic, you know? And if I say, I don't want to get married, it means I have the attitude, I know what's best for me, and I decide I don't want to get married, you know? But that's already the wrong approach in spiritual life you know, we, we, we accept guidance from seniors, gurus, diksha gurus, shiksha gurus, mentors. It's not a question of I don't want or I want, you know, but there we humbly inquire, will this be helpful? Should I? Will this be conducive for my spiritual development? Whole different approach, you know. There is the approach of humble inquiry and being willing to accept guidance. But with this approach, I don't want to get married, or well, then, you know, who can tell you anything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll better finish. It's quiet for nine. Can I, or should I finish? You tell me, Pooh. You look like one of the chiefs here. <laughs> All right, quickly.
Not that I get in trouble for going so long. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. So that's that's an individual question. We cannot answer it in general for, for online, I repeat. The question is, you know, ideally between twenty five and thirty a man should get married, but many join later and what to do. So it, it's an individual thing. Yes, some some Brahmajai training or some temple training definitely helpful, then you have a taste for Bhagavatam holy name and then it will be easier to keep that in the center of your family life, you know. But let's understand at least so much that we should not hang on to the saffron, you know, until 48 and then we decide, oh, maybe I should get married now, you know. So, but... <laughs> But ideally, around 30, 32, at the latest 35, we should actually make a decision for life, you know? Because otherwise we just miss the chance of the Vanaprastasham. I mean, I know, I know devotees, wonderful personalities, good preachers, they were Brahmacharis for 20 years and then 50, he decides to get married. <laughs> Of course, better late than never, you know, to go through the journey. But yeah, we have to educate our devotees, you know. We have to educate that there is another ashram after the Grihastha ashram. And then when that is firmly established, then people will plan their life properly, you know. But if that understanding is not there, and the understanding is not there that only very Brahminical men don't need that feminine energy to be inspired. So then, yeah, we, we don't go according to Krishna's perfect system through life, you know. Yes. Which of course doesn't mean, oh, we cannot go back to Godhead, so there's always some undeserved mercy or something, you know. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the ashrams is a perfect journey there, you know, to help us, you know. Okay, thank you so much for your kind attention. Gantachimad Bhagavatam ki, Srila Prabhupada ki, Samavira Bhaktavinda ki, Gaurapenandi, Hari Hari Mahal Hari